Good morning, everyone. It's my uh, first sermon back as a father of two, and I'm incredibly grateful to be able to say that. Um, I'm also, I'm in, Lisa and I are incredibly grateful for the support this church has shown us. Um, I'm not just saying this, but it is extremely difficult to imagine raising a family without you. And um, thank you. Church is its not just a place, it's, it's not just a Sunday morning thing, it's a spiritual family, and you guys have really shown us that. So I just wanted to say thank you for that. And um, before we dive in uh, to our passage this morning, let's, let's pray over that. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. It's not just an old book, but your word that's alive, your word that is like a sword able to get to our hearts. God, I pray that we would hear from you this morning, that as I speak, that you would speak to our hearts through your word. More than a speech, oh God, a time of hearing from you, tune our hearts to you. Help us to tune out the static and hear you, God, this morning. Would that we see Jesus in this time together. Amen. Well, this morning uh, we'll continue in our series on the book of Hebrews. We'll be in Hebrews chapter 8, the whole chapter. So in fact, uh, if you're able to, want to invite you to start working your way there, Hebrews chapter 8, if you have a Bible with you. Um, if you're using a phone, we're in the ESV, Hebrews chapter 8. We're going to do, do the whole chapter. You want to start working your way there. But before we dive in, I have an exciting opportunity um, to share with you this morning. You might not have known this when you woke up this morning, but today could be a big day in the history of the church. I haven't quite run this by Pastor Ralph or the elders, so it might come as a bit of a surprise. But I'm like, you know, pretty much sure that they'd be okay with it. Today we're going to vote on a new name for the church. Okay? So, uh, <laughs> did, did you hear that Pastor Ralph's laugh was especially loud? Okay, so I knew that this would take us a long time, so I've narrowed it down to a few options, okay, that we can vote on. So let's just go, well, first we'll go through them so you can get an idea, and then we'll, uh, we'll vote on them. Okay, the first one, Old News Bible Church. Okay, I'm not saying this is who we are, but it's who we could be. A, a new name is about potential, trajectory, possibility, Destiny, we could be the people of the old news. So think about that. Okay, the next one. Stale, bland news Bible church. Okay, you can imagine our Facebook group. Hey, SBNBC. Right, it kind of rolls off the tongue. So, there's an advantage of that. SBNBC. Okay, taken for granted news Bible church unique. Okay. Uh, 
for those who love hyphens. Uh, yawn because I've heard it my whole life. News. Bible church. Hyphens are super popular these days. So let's, you know, we could be popular. Um, and then finally, uh, good news Bible church. Okay, ready. Those are the options. So raise your hand for the first one. All right. Were you voting for that? No. Okay. It's okay. It's okay. Raise your hand for the second. All right. Cool. Cool. SCMBC. Raise your hand for the third. Okay. The the fourth. The hyphens. Oh, whoa. We got some. Yeah. Okay. All right. Now uh, raise your hand for the last. Anybody? All right. There's a clear majority there. It's good news. It is good news that we have. Isn't it? But as we start out this morning, the question I want to ask us is, do we live like it's good? Do we live that way? In other words, on a personal level, is the good news good to me. I, I, I heard about a man who on Monday morning got a call about an interview for a job. And this was his dream job. His whole life. He wanted this job. It was going to be Wednesday morning. So all day Monday, he was pre- preparing, working on being the best he could possibly be for this interview on Wednesday And then by the end of the day, he looked in his closet and he saw his only suit. And it was wrinkly. It had that ketchup stain on it. He was like, you know what? Okay, tomorrow I'm going to take it to the dry cleaner. This job meant the world to him. So the next morning he woke up, drove all around the city, finally found a 24-hour dry cleaner, dropped his suit off. The next day he woke up in the morning, went to go pick it up so he could head to this interview. And, and he gets to the dry cleaner. He says, okay, I'm, I'm ready for my suit. And the dry cleaner says, oh, we haven't even put it in yet. And he starts to panic. He says, wait, I thought this was a 24-hour dry cleaner. And the guy says, yeah, that's our name, but that's not how we operate on a day-to-day basis. Good News Bible Church. That's our name. We are people of the good news. Not just because that's our local church name, but because of what God has done in our lives. We are people of the good news. But do we operate that way on a daily basis? So the question is, is the good news good to me? And I think we need to ask this because it's our tendency to let the good news become old news. To let it become taken for granted. I've heard it my whole life kind of news. To maybe over time mentally agree with it. That we would nod to it. Yes, that's true. But our hearts are no longer lit up by it. We no longer live like it's good. Tim Keller, a pastor and author from New York, 
writes that this is a threat that every individual Christian and church faces through the course of their lives. He says that unless this tendency is arrested, a slow spiritual deadening takes place over the years. But how we fight against this tendency, how we push back against this dynamic by the work of the Holy Spirit is called gospel renewal. And that's when we see afresh how good the good news is. It's when the goodness of the good news grips our hearts. More than just something we agree with, but something that impacts our lives. I'm not talking about even just the way we feel about it, but the way that we live. And I believe that's what our author is doing in our passage today. In Hebrews chapter 8. Like we've said before, the, the Hebrew church is, is, is they're starting to spiritually fade. They're tempted to give in. They're tempted to go back to their old ways. The Judaism of their past. In other words, you could say that a slow spiritual deadening was starting to take place. And so in our passage today, the author lays before them the goodness of the good news. You'll notice that there's not a single command in this passage. He's just showing them how good the good news is. Let's look really quick at uh, verse 1 of chapter 8. If you're open there, verse 1 of chapter 8. It's just, just the first part of the verse. The author starts out, now, the point in what we are saying as this, or as more, most translators would put it, the main point in what we are saying is this. This is what the author has been leading up to for the past few chapters. You see, he has shown that Jesus is qualified as our high priest, and then that we need such a high priest. And now look at how the verse continues. Okay. Now the main point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest. Do you see what he's doing? Jesus is such a high priest. We need such a high priest. And look, we have such a high priest. That's the key word for this whole passage today. And that's the key word for the whole argument that he's been building up to for the past few chapters, it's have. I thought about that being the title for the sermon this morning. Have. The author is reminding them of what they have, all that they have, because they have Jesus. He wants them to see the goodness of the good news. That's how he's seeking to arrest their spiritual fading. In other words, he's leading them into gospel renewal. He wants them to see it. They need to see it. And it's something that we need to. We all need regular gospel renewal to fight against this tendency. It's like Luther famously said, we need, we need to beat the gospel into our heads continually. Because our tendency is allowed to become old news. We need to see how good it is. So 
this morning, we'll walk through this passage, and we will see two main things that we have as believers because we have Jesus. First is the real thing, and second is the new thing. So let's look at the first in verses 1 through 5. Hebrews chapter 8, verses 1 through 5. Let's, let's read. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this high priest also to have something to offer. Now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. So the question we're asking is, what do we have because we have Jesus? And these first five verses show us uh, three glimpses of him as our high priest. So number one, we have a seated high priest. Verse one, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty. God's right hand, he's seated there. And like we've seen before, the fact that he's seated means that the work is done. One scholar said, seeing him seated in heaven is the visual equivalent of hearing him say on the cross, it is finished. In other words, everything that was required for our salvation is completely done. Finito. There's no more left to do. The earthly priests were always standing, always making sacrifices one after another after another. It was never done. He's sitting down. His work is done. And that's good news. And sometimes we operate differently. Sometimes we know in our heads that the work is done. But we operate like there's more work for us to do for our salvation. And when we, we, when we operate like this, this is what our hearts end up looking like. Jaden, can we see that uh, slide? If you can find it. There it is. That's what our hearts end up looking like. I've, I've said this before, but I want to always remind you the treadmill was invented in prison. This is a picture of prisoners on a treadmill. It was originally meant, I'm not kidding, you can look it up. It was originally meant to be a sinister device for punishment. <laughs> Never forget that. Prisoners were handcuffed to the treadmill and kept going for hours and yet Guys, that can be a picture of our hearts. Handcuffed to a treadmill, going and going and going, trying to save ourselves, 
going and going and going, trying to remove our own sense of guilt, going and going and going, trying to earn our salvation, going and going and going, trying to make ourselves ultimately worthy and loved and accepted. But the problem is, when is it enough? When when have we done enough? When are we good enough? When will we arrive? There's always more. It's like that song from The Greatest Showman. Never enough, never, never. That could be the soundtrack of our lives. Never enough. We keep going and going and going. Like prisoners on a treadmill. We're trying to save ourselves. Sometimes it looks like trying to stack up all these good works. Trying to, trying to be moral and good enough people to be pleasing in God's eyes. We just try to keep doing more and more and more. But sometimes it also shows up in sneaky ways. Like we're trying to save ourselves and so we overwork at our jobs because our identity is in that. And if we can just do better at our jobs, then we'll feel okay and our hearts will be at rest. You see, we're trying to save ourselves through our work. We're exhausting ourselves, seeking different accomplishments and accolades, chasing after them because if we just get them, then we'll be okay. Going from relationship to relationship because we think that will satisfy our hearts. That next relationship will save us. But it's never enough. We keep going and going and going. Jesus has done all the work to rescue us. We don't have to try to do for ourselves what He has already done for us. Some of us here today believe the gospel, but we're on that treadmill. Some of you are tired. So I just want to, I just want to say to you, you can step off. It just looks like you're handcuffed, but by faith in Jesus Christ, you are free. Listen, I know what it's like. I have to regularly step off myself. I have to think, oh, I'm trying to save myself again. Oh, I've done it again. And I have to step off. Listen, if that's you, if you can relate to that, just let me tell you, we have a seated high priest. The work is completely done. There is nothing left for us to do to save ourselves. It's like the old hymn says, lay your deadly doing down, down at Jesus' feet. Stand in Him, in Him alone, gloriously complete. We have a seated high priest. We have a serving high priest. Look at verse 2. Seated high priest, serving high priest, Verse 2 says, Jesus is a minister in the holy places. In the true tent, the Lord set up, not man. He's a minister 
Or as the NIV puts it, he's one who serves. That's a good translation. Because that's what a minister does. A minister ministers. A minister serves. We have a high priest in heaven who is serving on our behalf right now. He serves us as one whose final, once for all sacrifice constantly speaks over us. Don't treat them as they deserve. Treat them as I deserve. Don't treat them as they deserve. Treat them as I deserve. Don't treat them as they deserve. Treat them as I deserve. His perfect life given for us constantly represents us until we are, we are constantly being treated as God's dearly loved sons and daughters. Everything good about His life has been sprinkled over our life so that when God sees us, He sees all the goodness of His Son. Some of us would probably never say this out loud. We know how to speak like good Christian people. But we sometimes operate as if God's mood towards us changes based on our behavior. Like author uh, Jerry Bridges says, if we have a spiritually bad day, then we feel like God is frowning at us. We slept in past our alarm and we forgot our quiet time. And all of a sudden we feel like God's mood towards us has changed. Or we treat Him like some sort of a cosmic Santa Claus. You better watch out. You better not cry. You better not pout. I'm telling you why. He's making a list. He's checking it twice. He's going to find out who's naughty or nice. Listen, as a believer, God constantly treats us based on the shining perfection of Jesus. That's what He sees when He sees us. And that will never, ever, ever change. Right now, right this instant, not depending on your behavior, whether you brought your A game, your B game, your C game, your D game, every single milla, jilla second of your life, you are constantly being treated as God's dearly loved son or daughter. He sees you and He sees the goodness of His Son. And He is bursting and beaming with delight. Because that's what He sees. We have a seated high priest. We have a serving high priest whose goodness constantly represents us every moment of our lives. Seated, serving, and a heavenly high priest. I really wanted that last one to be an S but I just couldn't force it. It's like celestial. No, that's a, that's a C. So this will be your, your, your mnemonic device. SSH. Okay. Uh, we have a heavenly high priest. The remainder of the verses in this first, the remainder of the verses in this first part set up a contrast between Jesus and, the, and, and then the normal high priest serving in the tabernacle on earth. Jesus is in heaven. They are in the tabernacle on earth. Verse 2, Jesus is a minister in the holy places, in the true tent, or as most translations put it, in the true tabernacle. 
set up by the Lord and not human beings. Throughout the Old Testament, the, the tabernacle was the, was the place where God's presence dwelled on earth. But you could say that it, that it was a contained, tamed, um, veiled presence of God. In contrast, Jesus serves in the uncontained, un, untamed, unveiled presence of God. His very presence in heaven. That's the true tabernacle. You see, the earthly tabernacle, according to verse 5, was just a shadowy, dim Faint copy. So what's the author's point in all this? Uh, I'll, uh, I'll try to explain with an illustration. Growing up, my, uh, my brother and I had this hobby of making these 3D puzzles together. And um, we had like almost ten of them, I think. Ten different ones. And my mom, bless her heart, let us uh, leave them up all over the house and Collecting dust and things like that. But one of our favorites, right under the Millennium Falcon, was this, um, was this, was this Eiffel Tower. Now, my, my mom is, um, going to France with the university that she works with this summer. And she is so excited. Uh, she is counting down the days from 150 days away. She started reading one psalm a day until the France trip arrives. So she's like counting down for a half of a year, reading a psalm a day until she gets there. She, I don't, that, when I was thinking about it this morning, I don't think she's ever been out of the country. She cannot wait to go to France. But what if I told her, Mom, you don't need to go to France. You don't need to go to Paris. I'll make you this Eiffel Tower again. It's just as good. And what if she was like, yeah, you know what, Carrie? Yeah, you're right. It's just as good. I'll just, I, I got this Puzz 3D. What would you tell her? What would you, go ahead, say it. What would you tell her? Yeah. Right? Don't settle for that. You have access to the original. Don't settle for the model. The dusty old model. Don't settle for the lesser thing. And that's what the author is saying. The Hebrew believers were being drawn to this earthly tabernacle. But the, so the author is saying you have access to the original. God's very presence. Don't settle for the lesser thing. Listen, we have access to God's presence. Don't settle for the lesser thing. It reminds me of a famous C.S. Lewis illustration. He's talking about a, a parent wanting to take, a parent wanting to take their child to a vacation at the beach, but the, the, the child says no. Uh, and, and wants to keep uh, playing with mud pies in the backyard. That's what I'd rather do. I don't want, I want to play with these mud pies. And Lewis concludes by saying, we are far too easily pleased. It's a picture of us. God wants to take us to the place 
where our hearts will truly sing, but we are far too easily pleased, content to play with mud pies in the backyard, distracted by lesser things. Jesus has opened up to us God's presence. Let's think about it. God's presence. Adam and Eve walked with God in the cool of the day in the garden. We were made for this kind of communing with God. But then sin entered the picture and the relationship was ruptured. But then Jesus came and brought the relationship back together through His, through His life, death, and resurrection. We were made for this. God's very presence. But often we are far too easily pleased with mud pies. So let me ask, do you have mud pies in your life right now? Has any lesser thing been distracting you from drawing near to God's presence? Because Jesus is our heavenly high priest. We have access to the original. Not the model, not the copy. So what do we have because we have Jesus? First, we have the real thing. We have heaven, where Jesus is seated and serving and brings us to the very presence of God. And the second thing is found in verses 6 through 13. It's the new thing. We have the real thing. We have the new thing. So let's read verses 6 through 13. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old, as the covenant He mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would be no occasion to look for a second. For He finds fault with them when He says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand, to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed, them, showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people, and they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful towards their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. And speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete is growing old and ready to vanish away. So once again, we see this contrast set up between Jesus and the earthly high priest. And it says that Jesus is better because the covenant that he brings is better. And that's the new thing that we have. The new covenant you see, the earthly priests were, were, were they ministered under the, under the Mosaic Covenant, the Old Covenant. That's not to be uh, confused with our Mosaic small groups. Mosaic meaning it was a, a Moses-esque, a Moses thing. It was through Moses, and that was the law delivered to the people when they were brought out of the land of Egypt. That's the Old Covenant. But Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant. Why is this covenant better? That's what the author will explain with the whole rest of the verses, the whole rest of the chapter. And the bulk of that 
is actually the longest citation of the Old Testament in the New Testament. It's from Jeremiah 31, 600 years before Jesus. It's an announcement of what the new covenant will be like. So the author draws on that to show two main ways that the new covenant is better than the old. Number one is the fault of the old covenant. Verse 7 points out that if the old covenant was perfectly fine for all time, then there would be no need for God to announce a new covenant. But the very fact that God announced a new covenant shows that something was lacking with the old. It wasn't meant for all time. So what was lacking with it? Verse 8, God finds fault with them. In other words, God finds fault with the people. The fault of the old covenant was not necessarily the covenant itself, but the response of the people. That's what verses 8 and 9 explain. You see, the old covenant was about God being faithful to the people and the people being faithful back to God like a handshake. But what we see throughout the Old Testament is that God was continually faithful to the people, continually holding out His hand. He kept holding out His hand and He kept holding out His hand and He kept holding out His hand, but the people kept being unfaithful and kept being unfaithful and kept being unfaithful. And so God finally says, okay, you can have it your way. The fault of the Old Covenant was the response of the people. The issue is our cheating hearts. God reaches out His hand but we never reach back. But that's not the end of the story. You see, a new covenant is promised, and it's not just better because it points to the need for something new, but number two, like it says in verse 6, it's based on better promises. What are these promises? When we read through these verses, there's, there's four promises of the new covenant that are listed. Number one, the first, the first promise of the new covenant that we see here is inward transformation. God promises to write His law, to put them in our minds and in our hearts. You see, the, the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant, was meant to be an instructor. It was meant to instruct and guide, but it was powerless to transform. We have a lot of teachers in this room. As a teacher... You can instruct and guide, and that's important, but I'm sure that many of you can testify that at the end of the day, you can't transform your students' heart. Chuck, you continually remind me, you teach 650 students a week, but how many of them can you transform their hearts? Yeah, it's up to them. We can't reach the hearts. The law was meant to be a teacher, and it's a good teacher, but it does not have the power to reach our hearts, to transform us. And sometimes some of us still try to be transformed by law. In our struggle against sin, we focus on externals only. Do this, do that, don't do this, don't do that. And it might help to guide our behavior, but law ultimately can't transform us. We need something to get to our hearts. And with the new covenant, God promises inward 
transformation. It's not by law, but by grace, by the Spirit living inside of us. But how do we avail ourselves of that? How do we take advantage of this benefit? 2 Corinthians 3.18 gives us one of the main ways. It says this. It's one of my favorite verses. By beholding Christ, we are being transformed into His image from one degree of glory to another. By beholding Christ, by taking in and grasping who He is and what He's done for us, we are transformed. In other words, time with Him. Time spent with Him. And that leads us to our other promises. Number two, an intimate relationship. God says, I will be their God and they shall be my people. No, it doesn't say, I will be a God and they will be a people. It says, I will be their God and they will be my people. And in, it, when introducing herself, Lisa could say, I am a wife. But to me, she's my wife. I could say, I am a husband. But to Lisa, I am her husband. For my children, for my daughters, I am not a dada. I am their dada. And they are my daughters. This is not language of a general relationship, but of one of utter closeness. There is no one closer to me in this world than those of whom I can say I am theirs and they are mine. And yet that's what God says of us. I am theirs and they are mine. And this is something that we hear all throughout the Old Testament, but with the New Covenant, it's taken to a whole new level. With the New Covenant, every barrier that once separated us from God is torn down and we are made one with Him. We speak of relationships being close-knit. We are as close-knit to God as possible. We are one with Him. We are His and He is ours. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, an influential theologian in Germany during World War II, um, was captured and, and um, put in prison in a concentration camp, camp for, for a plot to take down Hitler. And while he was in that cell, awaiting his death, he, he, he struggled um, just thinking through his life. And in those days leading up to his death, his execution, he wrote a fascinating uh, poem called Who Am I? Who Am I? He's wrestling with himself and God. He's saying, Who am I? Am I what these people think of me? Or am I this? Am I what they say about me? Or am I what I feel about myself? Who am I? He's going back and forth. He's saying, They, they call me so brave, but I feel so weak. They call me so smart, but at times I feel so empty. Who am I? And by the end of it, he finally says, Whatever I am, O oh God, I am yours. And then he faced his own execution knowing, God, I am yours. That's who I am. There is so much security in our identity that comes from knowing, God, whoever I am, I am the one who belongs to you. 
It's not based on my feelings. It's not based on my accomplishments. It's not based on what other people think of me or what I think of me when I look in the mirror. God, I am yours. The third promise is direct access. What does it mean in verse 11 when it says, They shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord. Does that mean that I should like, just sit down now? Like we shouldn't have preaching? No, it, it, it's, it's talking about how in the Old Testament, only certain people were go-betweens for God and the people. Only they could say, know the Lord. Because only they had that kind of access to God. But the promise here is that everyone in the New Covenant will have direct access to to God. We don't have to go to any human being as a go-between with God. We don't have to go to anyone to get God. And I'll just echo Carlos last week. Church is a good thing. It plays a unique role in our lives that, that nothing else really can. And later on in Hebrews, it commands us to, to gather like we're doing now. It's here to support your relationship with God, but it's never meant to be the entirety of your relationship with God. And sometimes we operate like church is the place where we get God and the rest of our lives is not. But in the new covenant, we have direct access to God at any time in all time. Let's do it. Number four. Fourth promise. Complete forgiveness. In verse 12, God promises for I will be merciful towards their iniquities and remember their sins no more. When you have entered into the new covenant, you might look back on your life and remember your sin, but God does not. And it's not that it has slipped His mind, but that He has deliberately put it out of His mind. He knows about it, but it's as if it never happened. It's completely forgotten for all time. The pastor who officiated Lisa and I's wedding in Detroit recently uh, wrote a book about his experiences as a pastor. And he talks about this time several years back where a, uh, a woman who had a deep criminal record came, came to know the Lord and God just turned around her life and renewed her life. And, and then she got involved in this, in this program for a whole year to get her record expunged. And then finally came the day where she was going to appear before the judge and like 20 people from the church came out to watch this. And uh, they waited in that courtroom for a while. They saw people who were in line before her to get their record expunged. And the judge would say the case number and say, case dismissed. Next person, case number, case dismissed. Next person, case number, case dismissed. And then this lady came up. And uh, the judge called her to step forward and, and said, case number, but then, nothing. And then she kept reading, case number this, 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 until they got to ten cases that were against her. For everyone else, it had been one. And there was this pause in the whole courtroom. The pastor says, even the the judge herself looks stunned. Ten cases. What will happen? And then the judge said, all cases 
dismissed. You are free to go. And the whole courtroom like erupted in applause. It was amazing. He said even the judge and the court officials were clapping and shouting. Every single record taken off the books. Have you heard your name called? Have you heard the judge say all and every cases dismissed? You are free to go. They're off the record. They're remembered no more. There's complete forgiveness. That's the new covenant. That's the new covenant. It's amazing. Jesus came to earth and reached back to God. He did what we couldn't do for ourselves. And then He offered this to us. He gave His life in exchange for ours so that we could have this with God by faith. That's what He's done for us. In essence, God says, I will fulfill both obligations, mine to you and yours to me, that you can have this by faith. You just receive it. Just turn to Him and and receive all that He's done for us on our behalf by faith and begin to live a new life by His power. That's the new covenant. What do we have? We have the real thing. Heaven where Jesus is seated. His work is finished. He is serving. His sacrifice constantly speaks over us. Don't treat them as they deserve. Treat them as I deserve. He, he brings us into the very presence of God where our hearts truly sing more than lesser things. We have the real thing and we have the new thing. The new covenant inward transformation, intimate relationship, direct access and complete forgiveness. That's what we have because we have Jesus. That is the goodness of the good news. And so I want to take a minute to, to ask the band to come forward. We're just going to sing just a little bit. The, the clock is ticking. But... Um, I just want to take a moment and as we sing, and even now, for us to, I want to invite you just to bow your heads and, and, and quiet your hearts and close your eyes if you're willing. And I just want to remind us that there's not a single command in this passage. All it's about is seeing the goodness of the good news afresh and letting that grip our hearts in something we could call gospel renewal. And I just want to make space for the work of gospel renewal to begin in our hearts. That if you've never believed in the gospel before, to make space for you to be able to say, I see that. I need that. I desperately need that. There's nothing else like what God has done for me. It's something I can't do for myself. And by faith to take hold of it, to turn to Him and take hold of it, I want to encourage you to pray with someone who can walk you through these first steps. And if you have believed, I want you to make space. I want to just make space for you to say, God, don't let it become old news. Don't let it be taken for granted. Don't let it be yawn because I've heard it my whole life news. But the good news, the, that our hearts would be lit up by the goodness of the good news. God, let it, let it shine before our eyes.
Heavenly Father, I pray that you would help us to see all that we have because we have Jesus. Help it to sink into our hearts and into our lives that we would be people of the good news and live that way. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to stand and I invite the prayer counselors to come forward. We have a few minutes just to sing a shortened version of this song.